on this season, we'll explore our most ingrained beliefs, delusions, and archetypes, the ways that cognitive dissonance shapes our culture, and how our reality is created by the stories we tell. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. The attractive home of John and Margaret Bryant, the home they've always dreamed of, the happiest investment they have ever made. So many people these days, we live in the suburbs. I was practically a prisoner in my own home. Well, I just could not live beside them. I moved here because it was a white community. Stop and listen to me. Listen. Listen. Listen to me. Get out, human! The old dregs, the old difficulties take me to wife. Gulls stiffen to their chill vigil in the drafty half-light. I enter the lit house. Like so many gloomy teenagers growing up in the suburbs, I was obsessed with Sylvia Plath, a confessional poet writing through the most quintessentially suburban of decades, the 1950s. If you aren't a fan of poetry, you may still know Plath, as most people do, for her famous suicide, her head in one of the most domestic of symbols, the oven, breathing in the gas until she fell asleep and died. Sylvia Plath has become something of a relic now, a symbol of the oppression of the domestic, of motherhood, of suburbia, how it takes away the real and replaces it with a repressive and almost horrifying boredom and uniformity. Always the brutal dramatic, she wrote, there's a hex on the cradle and death in the pot. There's a hypnotic notion created by both the duplicate houses and their lawns, as well as popular culture's spin, a hint that these suburbanites are nothing more than sentient zombies, their days manufactured like the Truman Show's literal staged reality. In the early days of TV, rosy suburban innocence was all the rage, showing perfect families whose lives generally involved problems as complex as whether to use a stamp collection to buy a sewing machine or a rowboat. On the other end of the spectrum, sci-fi and horror movies have often sought to expose and dissect the dark underbelly of suburbia, taking a certain pleasure in shattering the illusion. Whether you have fond memories of playing tag on the lawn, or memories of being trapped in an insidious boredom, or watching with a confused distaste from outside, or hoping to get there one day, the suburbs, of course, have a deeply complicated past. This past is rooted in a great fire that devastated Chicago in 1871 and prompted a melting pot of the newly homeless from all classes and walks of life and the subsequent exodus of the privileged. This escape from the city only increased in the post-war years as manufactured housing communities, beginning with modern-day Long Island, offered comforting uniformity to a nation devastated by the horrors of World War II and the Depression. The new suburban communities were designed also to imitate what had been lacking in the city, a return to what we'll call the pastoral fantasy, which refers to the original American dream, the expansion out, the conquering and connection to a wild new land, to nature itself. Sylvia Plath once wrote, Spare me from cooking three meals a day, 
Spare me from the relentless cage of routine and rote. I want to be free. Just like the pastoral fantasy, a yearning for the real is as much a mark of the suburban archetype as an unblemished front lawn. Steeped in the boring safety of the middle and upper classes, the real has also meant a longing for passion and even danger absent from a cloistered existence. Sylvia Plath, regardless of her beautiful contributions to American poetry, has been admonished for some of the more racist lines in her writing, a sense of white superiority, the kind that helped keep the suburbs violently segregated. As seen in the 1998 pop drama Pleasantville, suburbia has expressed its devotion to the program responses of a Disney-fied happy perfection. But hiding inside that safety, too, is a longing for more, a longing for danger, a longing that many of us understand. But do any of us actually understand what it is we're longing for? In October of 1871, one of the worst fires in American history decimated the rapidly growing city of Chicago, killing 300 people and leaving 100,000 residents homeless, one-third of their population. The ill-prepared government did what they could to create emergency shelters, but the relatively unaffected super-elite of the city believed that the mixing of races and genders inside these shelters threatened the morality of the social order. Pretentiously, they said of the emergency barracks, quote, so large a number brought into promiscuous and involuntary association would almost certainly engender disease and promote idleness, disorder, and vice. This group, known as the Relief and Aid Society, was worried about the fate of the middle class, which they believed were the driving force behind the increasing prosperity of Chicago. The group quickly came up with a new idea, and they began constructing single-family cottages on the outskirts of the devastated city. With the fire as its catalyst, this suburbanization was, in essence, an escape from increasing immigration. Very quickly, new European immigrants were the majority in Chicago, accounting for two-thirds of the population and what was considered the moral deviance of the lower classes. Chicago, like most other growing cities, housed the rich, middle class, and poor side by side in apartments and boarding houses, with brick homes as a show of wealth and wooden homes the opposite. Shortly after the fire, the city became much more intimate, as middle and lower class residents wandered the streets of Chicago with nowhere to go. This prejudiced mess of all types of people, and the fact that a middle-class banker could find himself beside an immigrant sex worker taking cover under a bridge shook the middle-class residents to their core. Of course, the city needed a villain, and a kind of urban legend began circulating through the wealthier communities. It was a fable about the dangers of class mixing, the wooden cottage symbolizing the danger of the poor, this fire kindling so close to the mansions of the rich. 
The fire story most widely circulated is that an Irish immigrant named Catherine O'Leary was milking her cow, which back then you could still find people doing in the city, and this cow had kicked over a kerosene lamp into the hay, setting the building ablaze. Just like today, the media and vicious moralists came for Catherine. It wasn't just that she'd been allegedly responsible for starting the fire, but that she shouldn't have been milking her cow that late at night, shouldn't have needed that kerosene lamp. She was painted as a lazy, irresponsible immigrant woman out too late, living a rural life in an urban town instead of the new lifestyle that marked the middle class. The story continued to grow more and more sensational when the Chicago Times claimed that Catherine had started the fire as a vengeance against the city that had denied her relief aid. The article read, quote, The old hag swore that she would be revenged on a city that would deny her a bit of wood or a pound of bacon. A hit song wound through the city with a chorus that said, quote, A cow could kick over Chicago. Five nights ago when we were all in bed, bum bum bum, Mrs. O'Leary left a lantern in the shed, and when the cow kicked it over, she winked her eye and said, it'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. Fire, fire, fire. Poor Catherine gave interviews disputing all of the stories that were slandering her name, swearing up and down that she always milked her cows on time, and that she had been in bed that night by 8.30, an hour before the alleged cow kick. Her neighbors all confirmed her story, but now Catherine was more than herself. She was the catalyst that justified the segregated suburbs as we still know them today. So if it wasn't Catherine, as the newspapers eventually admitted, there was another shady blank character that entered the scene, who was sneaking around the O'Leary home the night of the fire. He was, of course, a communist, and the Chicago Times changed their tune, quote, a startling story, fiendish work by communist incendiaries, and a, quote, diabolical plot for the destruction of the city by a Parisian agent trying to incite a revolution of the lower class. The story of a stride toward equality seemed to terrify the middle class almost more than the fire itself. Those pretty little cottages on the outskirts of the immigrant-majority city were starting to look pretty good. And off they went, the middle class, to build a new American dream. As we've talked about before, World War II produced a devastating emotional state for the collective nation, and the huge influx of soldiers returning home wanted the things they'd been dreaming about. Love, marriage, children, stability, and happiness. Groundwork for a new solution had been laid by famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright, a man with a disdain for the city and a great appreciation of nature, as well as cheap production. He started having a vision he called Usonia, a combination of USA and Utopia. But it wasn't until the sudden influx of shaken soldiers returning from Europe that there became an urgent need for affordable luxury housing. And in 1947, a man named William Levitt seemed to have a kind of mass solution, an extension of that idea, and he would go on to become the father of the manicured suburbia as we know it today. 
Using Henry Ford's assembly line structure, Levitt came up with a plan to create neighborhoods in what is now modern-day Long Island. He wanted to do so quickly, efficiently, and, of course, as cheaply as possible. His vision represents the pop culture images we've absorbed of suburbia, identical houses side by side, each with the same appliances. 750 square feet, two bedrooms, a living room, a kitchen, and a bathroom. No basements, no garages. They didn't have time for that. Levitt kept the prices low enough so that young couples could afford a down payment and move in immediately, and that was a good thing. As the morning before the Levitt Town homes went on sale, people had actually camped out in front of his office. And by morning, there was a line of 1,500 families gathered and waiting. But everyone in that line was white, one of the cardinal rules of this new suburban life. Levitt Town called itself a, quote, private haven in a heartless world where parents wouldn't have to worry. Here, they were safe, just like they were safe on the outskirts of a burned-out Chicago. Here, everything was straightforward, clear in its boundaries, clear in its traditions, and clear in its rules. With these segregated islands, only really accessible by the luxury of a car, suburbia was slowly becoming a white middle-class haven, away from the crime, poverty, black people, and immigrants. And this is Levittown. Here you can own your own home, complete with its own refrigerator, television set, and clothes dryer. You can raise your children far from the city's dirt, crowding, and crime, in comfort and safety. It became a way of starting to forget the horrors of war and extreme poverty, of ignoring the terrifying and looming threat of nuclear war, and of forgetting the problems that still plagued the poor residents of the city as they sat drinking lemonade on the lawn. As the 1950s bounced on its newly peppy heels, the popularity of the cloistered Cold War lifestyle grew and grew, with the pastoral fantasy of old America colliding with the modern middle-class American obsession with mass-produced goods that made life easier and pointed carefully toward the future. As Disneyland opened in 1955 and television streamed finally into the majority of middle-class homes, suburbia seemed to emulate that kind of bright-eyed fantasy manicured by the growing presence of corporations. A whole Disney-fied nation, life imitating life in the safest possible way. From World War II to the 1960s, the suburban population doubled, and those sprawling consumer palaces called shopping malls began to become the heart of 1950s suburbia. Along with aiding in the continued psychological repression of the nuclear threat with bright colors and strict gender roles, American nationalistic family values profited handsomely off the new affluence of this middle class. Corporations were responsible for those first domestic comedies like Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver, and The Andy Griffith Show, all of them nuclear family-centered stories transmitted to a significant portion of American households. These programs were about the easy, often fun problems of suburbia, the boring disagreements hugged out before the end credits, the simple, obedient messages writ large and sweet. But of course, the corporations weren't doing this out of the kindness of their hearts. 
they did it so they could play their loud and sometimes aggressive commercials that cut like a knife through the warm cake of American television. Unsurprisingly, the government too supported this middle-class suburbia both financially and symbolically as a beacon of the hope against, you guessed it, the communist threat. Vice President Nixon escorts Soviet Premier Khrushchev on a preview of the United States Fair at Skolniki Park in Moscow. It's the official opening of the American Exposition and dedicated to showcasing the high standard of life in our country. In 1959, a bizarre televised kitchen debate took place between Vice President Richard Nixon and Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev arguing on behalf of communism. Though the talk was held in Moscow, it was filmed in an American ranch house built in the style of those at Levittown just for this kitchen talk, cut in half so that bystanders and viewers could see inside the mystical suburban kitchen and the lifestyle of convenient goods that made America great. Unimpressed, this Soviet leader, referring to the comfortable lives that Americans were obsessed with, asked sarcastically if there was also a machine that, quote, puts food into the mouth and pushes it down, followed by his parting words, thank the housewife for letting us use her kitchen for our argument. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. And now, back to the show. Ah, the housewife, one of the most enduring symbols of a bygone America, created in the 1950s and 60s, coined by the media as a Mrs. America. We've been taught about her dual nature. On one end, a cookie-cutter happy mother, content with her husband's arrival home, her children's well-being, the meals she lovingly prepared for both. And on the other end, a depressed, anxious, gossipy, hysterical thing, one that was begging internally, emotionally, for more of that thing called life. It's true that the diagnosis of anxiety and depression soared during this decade, and psychologists who'd long been following the Freudian model of psychotherapy, of curing nervousness and hysteria by addressing childhood issues, were now presented with the science to stop neurosis. The drug known eventually as Mother's Little Helper was mass-produced to meet the needs of those discontented women— But really, oftentimes, they were meant to placate them back into contentment. Relaxed, alert, attentive, she is able to listen carefully to PTA proposals. The Milltown ads trumpeted. Frigid women who abhorred marital relations reported they responded more readily to their husband's advances. And, of course, you can't set her free, but you can help her feel less anxious. The world had seen problems with anxiety drugs before, as barbiturates, more powerful sedatives, had caused addiction in the previous decades. A film was shown to doctors to prove the effectiveness and difference between barbiturates and Milltown, using monkeys as their test subjects. With a scientist dramatically donning a pair of thick gloves and a welding mask, the monkey is presented as violent and out of control— then cut to the monkey blasted on barbiturates, nearly unconscious, and then cut to the Milltown monkey, chill but alert, happy, a cool monkey. The kind of monkey that might bring you a beer. The kind of monkey who might have dinner ready for you. The kind of monkey that would never, ever complain. And monkey see, monkey do, right? By 1956, doctors had written 36 million prescriptions for Milltown, mostly for women, leading eventually to one in three American adults popping the colors on a regular basis, almost like the M&Ms that were marketed by the same ad agency. Wonder Bread, too. What else did advertisers Ted Bates and company do? Well, they peddled Milltown purposefully to the drug-loving Hollywood elite, who were very down to clown and invented cocktails called Miltinis, which were martinis garnished not with an olive, but with a couple of Milltowns. Lucille Ball, Tennessee Williams, and Lauren Bacall were all famous for taking Milltown, and the gossip magazines let bored American mothers know all about it. The world of upper and middle class America was grossly overprescribed these meds, leading the scientist who discovered the effectiveness of the compound to state his belief that true anxiety disorders had been hopelessly trivialized. But there were those living in suburbia that experienced more severe mental illness and more severe reactions to a life that felt, well, lifeless. 
our favorite depressive poet, Sylvia Plath, would spend her life in and out of institutions like many creative women of her time and would undergo several rounds of shock treatment over the years. Her deeply personal confessional poems seem to capture the housewife's darker story, the one hidden under the uncanny motherly perfection that she just couldn't seem to achieve, that she just couldn't seem to want. Stuck in a fraught marriage, stuck with the burden of motherhood, she felt that this world was not where she belonged. Mental illness and discontent would be the end of Sylvia Plath, but she would leave behind poems that emulated that strife. Her words often pointed to the brutal and dim boredom of domestic life, the lie of it all, the absence of meaning that marked it for her. In Tale of a Tub, she writes, quote, Just how guilty are we when the ceiling reveals no cracks that can be decoded, when Washbowl maintains it has no more holy calling than physical ablution, and the towel dryly disclaims that fierce troll faces lurk in its explicit folds. However, this mentally ill poet that I've always loved had an unfortunately common racist streak. One scene in her famous novel, The Bell Jar, which was more or less a memoir, the main character named Esther kicks a black orderly during her stay in a mental institution. His crime? Serving her two different kinds of beans. Regardless of the sexist tolls that were felt by many of the suburban women at the time, being considered an anxious housewife was really only possible in white middle class and upper class families, as the majority of the lower class needed a paycheck from both husbands and wives, and were often seen as unable to experience this classy anxiety. Lower class folks did not have access to the same kind of psychiatric care and thus were not diagnosed with anxiety problems and medicated, but instead in some situations were forced to self-medicate with illegal drugs that would then have them arrested, just like today. So we have the suffering of the misunderstood psychological issues of sexist oppression, but at the same time we have the invisible suffering of the poor and people of color that really didn't interest those white women but instead often revolted them as they stood behind the husbands they had to blindly honor in order to be socially accepted. They are very close to the Levittown norm, except in one respect. William Myers Jr. and his family are Negroes in an all-white community. Why did you select Levittown to live? We were looking for a place to buy a home. We looked at Levittown, and we liked the homes here. We liked the advantages that Levittown seemed to offer in uh, comparison to other cities. And we understood that it was going to be all white, and we were very happy to buy a home here. Let's head back to Levittown, or at least one of the many iterations that would pop up following the first version in Long Island. By 1957, the Levitt town in Pennsylvania had unknowingly become home to its first black residents, the Myers family, made up of a young couple and their three children. Former Pennsylvanian William Myers was a World War II Army veteran, now an engineer, and Daisy Myers had obtained a bachelor's degree in education. 
this black family had reached the middle class. And as they appeared suddenly, walking into the front door of 43 Deep Green Lane in the Dogwood Hollow, shocked men grew increasingly angry. Women touched their tight faces and said, quote, Oh my, they are here. Can you believe it? The first news report followed soon after, when the Bucks County Courier Times reported, quote, the first Negro family to buy a home in Levittown. But Levitt didn't know anything about it, and he wanted to know how they managed to move in without his knowledge. It turned out that a previous owner had sold his house to the Myers over the phone, and it's likely that he did not ask Mr. Myers to disclose his race. Their family did not fly under the radar, as they hoped that they might. And within hours of the Bucks County article, a crowd was forming outside their house. They stayed late into the night, yelling, intimidating, threatening, with teenagers throwing rocks through their front window. The cop arrived to break up the mob around 12.30 a.m., with the sheriff asking desperately for backup from the state police, telling them that, quote, the citizens of Levittown are out of control. The violent intimidation only escalated, and eventually a mob headed over to Walt Disney Elementary School, where someone had lit an eight-foot bamboo cross on fire. Soon after, a coalition of 500 was formed that they called the Levittown Betterment Committee, whose mission was to remove the Myers family by any legal means necessary. In an emotional blow to the veteran William Myers, these meetings were held at the Veteran of Foreign Affairs post. Eventually, after many weeks, after another cross was burned at a local elementary school and many mobs had stood outside the modest ranch house, the Myers were no longer plagued with a constant crowd of racists yelling at their house at all hours, but they still received constant threats, with one neighbor hoisting a Confederate flag, blaring Old Man River constantly, day and night, through a loudspeaker. The Myers family would live in Levittown four more years before finally deciding to move back to Pennsylvania. These extremely dark aspects of this upstanding American wonderland were showing. These suburbanites were not good people by virtue of where they lived or how much money they had or how perfect their communities seemed to look. The same kind of horror that Sylvia Plath expressed in her poems was a kind of compacted version of what more well-known artists would expand out in the coming decades. This horror would go on to permeate the culture and haunt the cul-de-sacs of happy, well-manicured neighborhoods to the present day. Leading writers and directors, who were once teenage members of these communities, to rebel against the creepy conformity of their own plastic pretend pasts. The ultimate middle-class fantasy in the 1950s and 60s was the very trendy ownership of a nuclear bomb shelter. It was pretty much an unspoken competition to make the cutest and most ingenious hidey hole to protect against the horrific nuclear death that could rain down at any moment. Their children in elementary school learning to duck and cover, 
pretending that putting your arms over your head could do anything at all. But this head-in-the-clouds, head-in-the-sand mentality was, perhaps, a required cognitive dissonance, and to borrow the subtitle of Dr. Strangelove, it was how they learned to love the bomb. In every American mall, you could buy yourself a pre-made bomb shelter, and stacked beautifully inside these bomb shelters, you could find all of the hottest brands to make sure that you can take them down with you for the end of times. However, this cognitive dissonance to the younger generation was really dark. As Sylvia Plath might have seen it, a bomb shelter decorated with curtains that lead only to the cold metal behind them. Witnessing the uncanny valley of dummies dressed in popular American brands set in suburban houses way out in the desert, shown in glossy magazines, shown as things you could buy and then blown up in a nuclear test, was not lost on the coming-of-age baby boomers. More after this. And now, back to the show. As the horrific truths of the Vietnam War were revealed to the new generation, they, thankfully, revolted in vital ways. Due to the economic prosperity of the time, teens and young adults of this me generation, as baby boomers were originally called, created a rapid cultural switch, a focus on self-investigation and the internal world, which we cover in depth in our episode called Mind Control. This, in turn, led to a more liberal attitude that focused on the need for real experiences over corporate conformity. This majority middle-class movement wanted the opposite of the seemingly perfect and safe lives they had grown up in, and so many took off hitchhiking and joined the anti-war and civil rights movements, taking mind-expanding drugs and having a lot of unmarried sex and trying, a bit sloppily, to face ugly American realities that had long been ignored. Up-and-coming directors drew from their own lives as previous suburbanites, and pop culture began to turn on the suburbs and the nuclear family. To govern the forming of human flesh and blood out of thin air is fantastically powerful, beyond any comprehension. Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! They're not human! These new creatives believed that they could see through the veneer and into the darkness of suburbia, the so-called moral middle class of the bourgeoisie utopia. The cracks in the ceiling, the ones Sylvia Plath wrote about, were showing. Films like The Stepford Wives and Dawn of the Dead painted suburbanites as robotic and zombified. David Lynch's Blue Velvet scandalized audiences and cast perhaps the darkest pop cultural shadow yet on the landscape of the middle class. This evil suburban trope became so omnipresent throughout these decades that a subgenre was formed called suburban gothic and included titles like Poltergeist, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Scream, People Under the Stairs, Edward Scissorhands, Serial Mom, Donnie Darko, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and more recently, Weeds, Desperate Housewives, Stranger Things, Pretty Little Liars, The Society, Good Girls, and Big Little Lies. Dark suburbia is now so ubiquitous a plot device as to no longer be really noticeable at all. 
The interesting part about suburban gothic was that the genre began to focus not on the threat of the dangerous outsider, but instead insisted that the core of the apple was already rotten. The problem wasn't them, it was us. As we talked about, the Chicago fire created a sudden racial, cultural, and class mixing and led to the first great middle and upper class white flight. In the post-war years, the suburbs as we know them were created by designers like William Levitt and legally segregated to keep them as white as possible. However, in the last 25 years since our Great Recession, more and more immigrant families are moving into the suburbs, which have become home to 50% of their populations. 39% of black folks now live in many suburbs, like Ferguson, Missouri, that were once 99% white and are now more than 50% black. Possibly due in part to these demographic and economic changes, that Usonia, that USA utopia that architects like Frank Lloyd Wright and William Levitt originally imagined, looks completely different today. And maybe that's why we're starting to see a kind of reversal of white flight that once characterized the suburbs. We're starting to see an exodus of the white middle and upper classes moving back to the city, looking for that authenticity that their boring suburban childhoods seem to lack. As tech metropolises like Amazon move into urban centers, they bring with them swaths of young and affluent people who, meaning to or not, reshape the landscape they live in. Here in Seattle, it seems that ugly condos pop up daily, replacing the affordable brick buildings that once lined the avenues, bringing new luxury buildings that in a lot of ways mimic the suburbs. They all look eerily similar, and the condos inside are as large as houses, with lawns and gardens and trees living in a square at the very top of the very tall building, and sometimes you can even find chicken coops and dog parks. It seems that as the middle class returns to the city, we cannot leave that pastoral fantasy behind. So we'll put it way up high at the top of our tower, out of reach from those who never left the city. Remember why you moved to the suburbs? Lots of fresh air, a big loft for the family, plenty of room to enjoy that good life. But what about time to enjoy that good life? Has that big lawn got you tied down like a cook in an all-night diner? Then open up your weekends with an Alice Chalmers Lawn and Garden Tractor. Yes, it's a good life for those who find the time. These lawns that inspire these yuppie rooftops were at the heart of William Levitt's planned community in the late 1940s. He demanded that each home have a front lawn of well-manicured grass, no more and no less than two trees, with each pair the exact same distance apart. This contrived homage to nature was popularized first in 1841, when early landscape designer Andrew Jackson Downing wrote of the almost spiritual practice of lawn care. In Treatise on the Theory and Practice of Landscape Gardening, Downing's concept of the lawn was a way to reach some kind of Plato-esque ideal. In the landscape garden, we appeal to that sense of the beautiful and the perfect, which is one of the highest attributes of our nature. He wrote, Like Pizza Hut's personal pan pizzas, our lawns are personal pan pastoral fantasies. 
We want the realness of the wild, our favorite historical heroic danger, cushioned with a newfound post-war privileged safety. We don't care about the cost, our ornamental lawns wasting water to outrageous degrees, emitting dangerous greenhouse gases from their fertilizers, chemicals, and mowers, with lawns being the most irrigated crop in the country and for what? Since the 1940s, there have been these things called weed laws on the books, and in some rare cases, people have even been arrested for not keeping a well-trimmed lawn. As we've heard on this episode and the entirety of American Hysteria, metaphorically speaking, the privileged have long done whatever it takes to snuff out those people considered the weeds. Our archetypes of this perfect, unblemished American lawn, along with the original suburban visions that carry through in some ways to the present day, could be considered metaphorically to represent our homogenous American dream. All suburban women were truly experiencing the pressures of a sexist American dream, and a shocking number were popping pills in part to deal with a grinding boredom and a lack of existential meaning. This was a painful and serious reality, but it's true, too, that so many women were overprescribed medication during this time period. And this anxiety and depression, this existential boredom, at the end of the day, was also a privilege, or at least the acknowledgement of it was. Remember, the only people who were prescribed Milltown were those white people of the middle and upper class. Poor folks and people of color were not considered smart enough, not considered part of the thinking class. Therefore, blissfully unaware of the bigger existential questions that cast a long and dark shadow of boredom across the kitchen table, where the women could almost make out their reflection, at least the shape of it. For others, they could only dream of a boredom that came from money and free time, something sorely lacking inside the city. The cognitive dissonance of post-war American suburbia, the bomb shelters, the sexism, the racism, the syrupy happiness that seemed to cover the neighborhoods like coats of fresh paint. This culture was encapsulated in that poem we talked about earlier, Tale of a Tub, one written in 1956 by our girl Sylvia Plath. She knew that those around her were, quote, disguising the constant horror in a coat of many colored fictions. We mask our past in the green of Eden. A potent example of much of what we've discussed here is represented within the 1998 magical realism dramedy Pleasantville, which I just watched again for the first time in like 10 years. In the movie, accidentally using a supernatural remote, teenage siblings, played by Reese Witherspoon and Tobey Maguire, are made to enter a 1950s black-and-white sitcom called Pleasantville that's not unlike Leave it to Beaver. In this perfect post-war town, there is no such thing as fire, no such thing as rain. The high school basketball team makes every single shot they take, and wives have laughably large breakfasts and dinners laid out at the exact same time every day and always with a smile. 
The residents, the teenagers soon realize, know nothing outside of the town. In fact, the road simply circles back to Pleasantville, and their geography classes look only at the intersections of their own quiet streets. The residents, too, have no consciousness of their precise prescribed roles, mortified and confused when the expected respectable responses are not delivered. At Toby McGuire's insistence that they don't alter the town, the teens play along. But with their dangerous 90s worldwise wherewithal, the teens soon find themselves altering the landscape of this extremely repressed community, showing them the magic of sex, which they've never heard of, masturbation, which they've certainly never heard of, art, which they've never seen, passionate fighting, passionate love, and color itself, represented by the town's sudden introduction to the authentic human experience. As black musicians Miles Davis and Etta James begin to play in the background, and the roses and the paint and the fire and the blood burst into color, the film takes an admittedly shaky political turn. There are no black people in Pleasantville, but those who have been touched by this realness are shown in full color, in fact, they're problematically called colored people, while those, mainly older white men, cling to the past angrily and stay their original black and white. Those who have received their color are treated in ways that mimic the Jim Crow era, like harassment, destruction of property, and eventually segregation. It's a little obtuse attempting to paint the reality of the Jim Crow era suburbia, but refocuses again on the white yearning for the real with a painful historical black narrative appropriated for that white yearning for realness. Our story of suburbia is simultaneously a lucky avoidance of danger and a deep yearning for it. That realness can come from faraway nature that we want to corral into our own control, our pastoral fantasy, that original, unpredictable, wild American dream. Or it can come from that realness that would crack open our plastic hearts and give us something to cry about, something to really love, art, fire, rain some kind of a brutal truth, some kind of dangerous passion that the cloistered lives of our pop suburbia has always seemed to lack. In my own suburb in the 1990s and early 2000s that was far from the examples we've talked about today, I still wanted this realness too. And in terms of where I lived, I was safe. I was a teenager reading Sylvia Plath's final book called Ariel, assembled by her controversial husband after her suicide. Draped across the night grass of the local public school, I ached too for more, for how our precious little human lives were supposed to feel full color beyond a quiet town. My life has always been a search for this realness, in no small part because I have had the comfort, the education, and the leisure time to drape myself across a soft pastoral fantasy, staring up at the authentic question of a rising moon. What's it like out there? 
a local girl asks of Pleasantville's protagonist after finding out that he is from the mythical world beyond their cul-de-sacs. Well, it's louder and scarier, I guess, he tells her, and a lot more dangerous. Sounds fantastic, she replies, and looks in wonder over the black and white horizon. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we're extending the idea of suburbia out even further and taking a look at those discontented teenagers we now call hipsters. And it traces back all the way to a skinny jeans wearing Yankee Doodle Dandy. The nonprofit we'd like to highlight for this episode is called Preservation of Affordable Housing. And their primary mission is to preserve, create, and sustain affordable, healthy homes that support economic security and access to opportunity for all. Their mission is now expanding out into the suburbs to help those living in hidden poverty. If you can, please consider supporting the Preservation of Affordable Housing nonprofit. That's P-O-A-H dot org. P-O-A-H dot org. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Produced and edited by Clear Camo Studios. Research assisted by Riley Smith. And script editing by Miranda Zickler. And voice acting by Will Rogers. We're always looking for people to donate to our Patreon because we're an independent podcast. You'll get extra episodes every month and you can help us go through season three and beyond. 